been, it's been very good to have that sharing in prayer time back in uh, the regular rhythm of our, our church life. And as you hear some of these uh, requests, um, I just encourage you to keep them on your mind and in your prayers during the course of the week to come. This wouldn't be the last time that we bring them before God in prayer. Praying for each other is one of the best things we can do as a church family. I have to remember, as important as it was, <laughs> I have to tell you, as important as it was, I don't remember being born, but I am told that it was an unpleasant experience. I was born uh, four weeks early, and forceps were involved, which isn't great. And there's been a number of times in my life where someone asks me the question, are you ready? And you know what I want to say? I was born ready. But that would be a lie, because I was born four weeks early, and they had to use forceps to, to drag me out. So I'm, not able, I'm one of those people that's not able to say that phrase, I was born ready. And, uh, and the birth experiences are, are crazy. I remember when Karen and I were ex- expecting our, our first child, and, uh, and, and then there's the other parents that have been through this process, and they try to explain to you a little bit of what it's like. They say, you just have to, you just have to experience it. And I remember being not the one experiencing it, the one observing this experience. And I was like, this, everyone normalizes birth, but it is crazy. It is intense. It is absolutely insane. So I'm glad I can't remember anything of it. Maybe there's a small mercy for those mothers who have gone through it and can forget some of that. But all I will say is all you moms out there who have given birth, kudos to you. Infinite respect. And I'm done talking about that now. (laughs) But why would we even bring it up? Well, it's this type of mindset. It's this type of experience. It's this type of image that is actually brought to our mind by John in his gospel. Because he talks about being born again. And to be born again has become this Christianese buzzword. People will say, are you born again? And lots of you, even those in the church, we might be like, well, what do you even mean by that? If you're not in Christian circles, it might sound an abs- like an absolutely absurd thing to ask someone. Are you born again? What do you mean? And if you're in Christian circles, it's become, again, such a common phrase or, or a buzzword that we probably have even divorced it from its initial meaning. That can be a problem as well. What do you mean? What, why do we even use this phrase? Well, it does have a biblical background, and my hope is that at the end of our time together today, we will all have a greater understanding of what John means, or what Jesus means through the words of John when he says we can be born again. And the Apostle John, in his gospel, lays the groundwork for this in his prologue. And we're going to read together and study together from John chapter 1, this time, verses 10 to 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to there or scroll over to there on your phone, whatever the case may be. We're going to read these verses together, we'll pray, and then we'll study them in greater detail. This is what John writes, picking up in verse 10. He, meaning the Word, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray once more. God, we, we come to a, a passage that may be familiar, to an idea that may be familiar, and I pray specifically this morning that we would get past phrases that have been maybe uh, taken or co-opted by our, our church traditions, and we'd get past the phrase to the meaning, to the spirit, to the transformational reality of what it means to be born again. God, I pray that your spirit would be here present with us binding us together in the unity of your family and leading us into the words of truth. God, we just look so forward to what you have to teach us, and we pray this in your name and commit our time to you. Amen. 
And so here, in between verses 9 and 10, what we read last week and what we started with this week, we see the Christmas story in John's prologue. He said in verse 9, it was a bit of a cliffhanger. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was coming. And then verse 10, he was in the world. And there you go. That's John's Christmas story. He was on his way, and then he was here. John kind of skipped over the part with angel visits and immaculate conception and Roman census and mangers and swaddling clothes, angels and shepherds, crazy stars and gift from the Magi. All of that is kind of glossed over. The word was coming into the world, and then he was here. He arrived. And part of this brevity is it points to the fact that for, for John, it's not the details of the story. In fact, the way that I would describe it is most of the gospels that we have, and we're grateful for this, they zoom in on the story, and they give us the details, the nitty-gritty, the characters, and the, and the drama. But what John does is he takes, in his prologue, in his gospel, he takes it and he zooms all the way out. And he says, this is the Word who created the world. And at some point, this one who, who through all things were created, this one whom we learned holds everything together by the power of his Word, the same one was in this creation. He came down to this world. What an incredible moment. And so John is zoomed out, and he's taking a look at the big picture, and it is powerful, and it is compelling that the word through whom all things were, were created would actually come down to this creation. But the dark irony of John's gospel is that this monumental event went unnoticed and unrecognized by many. John says simply, the world did not know him. Like, this should be shouted from the rooftops. Just, this should have been the greatest point of human history, the greatest point of universal history, that the Creator was part of His creation, and it went unnoticed, largely unrecognized. You see, people were looking for something different. Their eyes were on something else. Their focus were on different priorities, certainly not on a baby being born in a lowly manger. And as John has already told us, for much of the world, they were clouded in darkness, shrouded in darkness in this spiritual ignorance. They were blind to what God was truly doing. And so when the creator of the world came down to this world, the world did not know him. And that was true of a moment in time. But this the temptation. This sliding into this spiritual darkness of our eyes being elsewhere is still something true today. And are we at risk of missing out on what God might be doing just because we are simply not looking for him? Have we fallen in some way, somehow, and pray to this temptation and trap of spiritual darkness because God is still moving? God is still doing great and wonderful things. Are we looking? Or when he does this monumental thing, do we miss it, just as the world missed Jesus at his first advent? But on a more personal level, it's not just that Jesus was overlooked. It wasn't just that he was unrecognized, that ultimately he was rejected. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John was, is speaking here specifically of the Jewish people, and we know that messianic expectations were at a fever pitch at the time of Jesus. And the Jews that, that wanted to recapture the nation of Israel, they were chafing under the bondage of the Roman Empire, and they were longing and looking for this Messiah, the, the prophesied one, the anointed one of Israel to come and to reestablish this kingdom of Israel, to throw 
off the yoke of slavery and to be the people of God once again. And so in, in, in a very real sense, the, the Jews were looking for the Messiah. And it wasn't that they didn't see Jesus, it's that they rejected him. His own people did not receive him. Because Jesus was different than what they thought the Messiah would be. He wasn't a charismatic political figure who would, who would win victories in that arena. He wasn't a military figure who could call the people and inspire them to take up arms and to fight against the Roman Empire and push them out of Judea. No, that's what they were looking for, and Jesus was none of those things. And in the end, it was the religious leaders and the masses of his own people that shouted, crucify him. That ultimate sense and moment of rejection. And yet we should be very slow to point any fingers. Jesus was rejected by many. Jesus was different than many people expected. He was not always what they were looking for. Are we at risk of missing out on what God is doing, not just because we're not looking, but because we are looking for something different? And each of those ways were ways in which this spiritual blindness and darkness showed itself at that first coming of Jesus. Some of the world were not looking for him at all. And others who were looking for him thought he should be something different. He was overlooked and he was rejected and not received. But for those who did receive Jesus, the story was very different. Not everybody missed it. Some people saw. Not everyone rejected. Some people received. And we can receive Jesus as well. To receive means to accept someone. The picture here that the Greek gives us is to welcome someone in warm hospitality. So Jesus comes largely unlooked for, largely unannounced. And who would receive, accept, and welcome him with warm hospitality? That's the question. Especially because he was different than expectations. I was talking with my wife Karen this past week, and she mentioned that her grandparents lived just outside of Manitou on a farm on the last curve or bend in the highway. And that's where they lived for, for most of their life uh, together. And, and, and that bend in the highway sometimes would prove pretty treacherous in the wintertime. And there would be many different occasions in which people would be stuck in the ditch or stranded for a time, and they would come to their door, and they had this opportunity to welcome them and to help them warm up and to feed them or to let them use the phone or then to, to grab a tractor and to pull them back out of the ditch and onto the highway. They were never looking for these encounters. They, they didn't plan to have people over for dinner the way that we might plan to do that. It was this unexpected request of them that was received with welcome and warm hospitality. And that's a picture of what we are to spiritually do when it comes to Jesus. Maybe we've looked for him, maybe we haven't. Maybe he's what we thought he would be, maybe he's different. But whatever the case may be, there's a call on our life. Will we receive him with arms wide open or not? And that is the question. Well, if you're like me, I really try to get some of these phrases down to tangible, practical things. What does this look like in my life? And so to receive Jesus seems kind of nebulous or vague. And so then I was like, okay, well, does John explain it? And he does. He explains it a bit. He says to receive Jesus then is to believe in his name. Okay, thanks, John, for giving us another indicator of what you might mean. But then I have the same question. What does it actually mean to believe in the name of Jesus? I really appreciate the way that um, commentator Colin Cruz puts it. He says, to believe in a person's name is to believe in the person because the name stands for that person. Receiving him involves then accepting the teaching and revelation of God that he brought. 
See, in the culture of Jesus' time, names were purposeful. They were a reflection of who that person was. They were directly tied to their identity and their purpose and their mission. Not like today where you can, you can kind of choose any crazy name you want to name your kids. Sometimes these millennial names get a little out of hand. I love the story that comedian Matt Taylor says. He says, uh, he says this. He says, one, one day I met a guy named Jathan. Not Jason. Not Nathan. Jathan. I was like, okay, this is a weird name. But, but if you're anything like me, then I, I have a hard time remembering people's names. So I'd like to repeat the name over and over to commit it to memory. Like, nice to meet you, Jathan. How are you doing, Jathan? I love your story, Jathan. And then halfway through the evening, he looks at me and just says, are you serious right now? Man. I was looking at the YouTube video, and there's a few actual Jathans that are commenting like, hey, I'm right here. Jathan. Okay, that is not the way that names were done in Jesus' time. To believe in Jesus' name is to believe in who he truly is, who he has revealed himself to be. According to John's prologue, as we get there, who he has revealed God to be. This is the substance. It's the person. It's the identity and the mission of Jesus that we believe in. And we get another detail. John has a line of thinking here in his writings. In 1 John 5, 1, he says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves who has been born of him. So now we know that to believe in the name of Jesus is to believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. But more than that, we know that Jesus is the name above all names. One of the first Advent series I had the privilege to do here as, at Stony Brook as your pastor, we looked at the name above all names, the different names and titles ascribed to Jesus around the Christmas story. And, and so much of that was to draw us back to the fact that these were not titles, they were a reflection of who Jesus is. And we get a complete picture. And I would just like to share for you, of all the different names that we could remind ourselves of, uh, a well-known prophecy that we share at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6 where the prophet declared about Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To believe in the name of Jesus is to believe all of these things are true of him. And all of what he says is true about him. And all of what he says he will do is a promise that he will keep. To believe in the name is to believe in the person, identity, mission of Jesus. So there's one more point of clarity, I think, before we can say we understand this truly. What do we mean by belief? Well, belief to the apostle, and now all of us this morning, is not just this mental acknowledgement who Jesus is. It's not a quiz saying, make sure you remember all the different names that, that Jesus has given in Scripture. It's, a, it's instead a wholehearted trust of who Jesus is. We don't just believe these things here. We throw our whole lives into the truth of that, that we would trust Jesus with this life and our eternal life to come. That's the type of belief, this trust in who he is. Uh, just this past week, I was also having a conversation with my youngest son who was asking some questions about what it means to believe in Jesus. And, and he's, he's four now, and so we're having a few more of these conversations. And I love to see the, that spiritual curiosity even though his theology is quite messed up. I'm going to tell you, we have some work to do. But he's curious 
and I love having these conversations. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I'm like, perfect. Analogy time. Here comes pastor mode, right? Okay, so Silas, do you remember when we were doing swimming lessons and you and the other classmates, you'd have to stand on the side of the swimming pool and then you're supposed to jump to me and I would, I would reach out my arms to you and say, you can trust me, you can jump. I said, did you trust me? And he thinks about it and says, no. And I was like, well, now, now that teaching moment is gone. <laughs> and he was right at the beginning. He found it very difficult to, to conjure up the courage to jump in. And, the, and the, at the end, he was able to do so. And the reason was not so much that he trusted that the water was safe. The reason why he changed his mind is he trusted that I would actually catch him. And it's this type of trust that's reflected in the belief. Jesus says, I am wonderful counselor. Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, will you trust me? Will you take that leap of faith? Will you give me your life? And when we do that, we believe in the name of Jesus. And when we do that, we've received him with warm hospitality. And when we do that, we are able to grab hold of the promise that this passage gives, that we can be born of God. As John describes it, when you receive Jesus and believe in his name, you are given the right to become children of God. That's verse 13. Right speaks to this notion of an ability or privilege. And and sometimes I I wondered, is right the correct term to use? Because we use that often. What are my rights? I have human rights. What are my rights as a citizen? And COVID has given us a lot of things to think about as far as rights are concerned. And we shouldn't get the wrong idea. In and of ourselves... Just based on your merit, based on what you deserve and what you can accomplish, you and I, we have no right to become children of God. We cannot achieve this. It is not something that's within our own power to do. We do not deserve it. If anything, our sins have now created this obstacle and barrier between us and God. We've been thrown out of the garden, thrown from the presence of God. We have no right to become children of God. Well, what's the difference? What is John saying? He says that in Christ, in believing in his name, by receiving who he is with open arms, he gives us the right, the ability, the privilege to become children of God. It is only the work of Jesus who desires to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, who desires to give us a gift that we do not deserve on our own merit. And the apostle describes this process as being born of God. That's the way that he puts it in the prologue in verse 13. To be born of God then is this utter transformation. Later in the gospel, he describes it as being born again to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And yes, I do think that we need to connect the ideas in John 1 and John 3. And, And John 3 gives us a greater picture of what it biblically means to be born again. So let's go there. I'm going to read for you John chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now you know why I bothered bringing it up in the first place. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What a wonderful passage. What a wonderful conversation that John, sorry, that Jesus had with Nicodemus and John captures this. And, and I'm going to show another video clip from The Chosen. Uh, and don't blame me for this. Blame them for doing such a good job and making these stories come to life. I don't know where to start. I have so many questions. I... Shall we sit first? Oh, yes, of course. slums. Hmm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm -hmm. But I have never heard anyone tell the paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe... You are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? (laughs) (laughs) Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? (sighs) I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, may she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That part of you, that is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things. I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. Do you hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the Spirit, you can recognize his effect. Mind is consumed with thoughts of 
what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes, and I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. And there we have just a depiction of what that visit, what that meeting might have looked like between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus gives a great and a wonderful example. I love how he reaches across the table, says, that's which born of flesh is flesh, and he grabs his hand, and that's which born of the Spirit is Spirit. And he points to his heart. So to be born again is to speak of a spiritual transformation. Let's go back to John's prologue, because we get some details here too. John says that to be born again is not to be born of blood. And this speaks of, of a descendancy, of a genealogy. For, for those who were, who were Jews who were listening to this so much had, had been put in being a, a descendant of Abraham, that this would be their lineage and their, this would be their, their, their blood descendants here. And, and John's saying that's not what it means to be born again. He says not either the will of the flesh, which speaks to sexual desire, which leads to children being born. If you don't understand that, you can talk to your parents after the service. Nor the will of man. And this is not a gender-inclusive word. This is actually a word that refers to a husband because in that culture it would be the husband's desire and decision to have another child. So John says this being born of God is nothing to do with being a descendant of Abraham, nothing to do with fleshly desire, nothing to do with the decision of a husband. This has everything to do with being born of God be made spiritually new. And then Jesus goes on to, to say through Nicodemus and through that word that unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's a requirement. It's a necessity. We must be made new. We must be transformed in our spirit in order to truly be part of this kingdom of God. And then there is a promise. When you are spiritually reborn, you are a child of God. I think this is what makes this metaphor so rich because birth not only speaks to a new beginning, but it speaks to family. It speaks to belonging. It speaks to being part of God's heavenly family. And if again, I think back to the experience of when my children entered this world, it wasn't just the newness. It was the fact that there was my son. He was mine. He was part of my family. And the world would never be the same again because of that reality. We are not only made new, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. I love the way that Paul puts it in Galatians 4. I'm going to read for you verses 3 to 5. And we see even echoes of this Christmas story in his passage as well. Picking up in verse 4, actually, he, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. So if there's one phrase that you can take away from today, what is the, the main point of this message? What can we internalize? Is that at this season, we celebrate the fact that Jesus was born so that we may be born again. Jesus was born so that we may be born again. And the Christmas story is not merely about a baby. It's about our own spiritual rebirth and our own firm identity as children of God. Not just about God's child, but about us as God's children. 
And our adoption into God's family gives us a transformed spiritual identity that can never be stripped away. And I'm not sure of what your story is or what your week has been like or what your month or year has been like, and you may be struggling with big questions. You might be asking yourself, who am I? What's my purpose in life? Where is my hope? And all sorts of things in this world will threaten our answers to those questions. But all of these answers are truly found in the fact that we are children of God. That when we receive Jesus and believe in his name, that he adopts us, makes us new, and gives us a firm identity that nothing can truly take away from us. And because you did not earn it, again, we don't have a right to be a child of God. We cannot achieve it. We cannot earn it. It's given to us. Therefore, you also cannot unearn it. And so if you feel like a failure, and if you feel like you are falling short of God's goal for your life, then that very well may be true, but that does not mean you are any less a child of God. This last week in my small group, we were going through Psalm 23, and part of our discussion with that passage brought us to the parable of the prodigal son. And we talked about what a beautiful picture this is of a father delighting over one of his children, no matter what that child has done. So if you remember this parable, it was a son who came to his dad and said, I want my inheritance early, which basically says, I don't care about you. I wish you were dead already. Just give me what, uh, what you can give me for myself. And then he goes, and after betraying his father, he goes and squanders the, this money until he has nothing left and he has nothing to eat. And he says, I'm going to go home and ask for forgiveness from my father, and maybe he will just hire me on like a hired hand. And my favorite part of this story is that before the son can get all the way home, before the son can apologize, before the son can say, I'm sorry, and hear his father's response, his father sees him, in the distance, and he runs to meet him. He runs to his son, not because his son has done well, (laughs) not because his son has loved him well, not because his son has been perfect, but because he is his son. And that is enough. And the father's heart is to delight in his children. And when you receive Jesus and believe in his name, you are a child of God. Scripture goes on to declare that as sons and daughters, we are also co-heirs with Christ, sharing in the eternal kingdom that he has established and will one day complete. And so today, if you feel like a failure, if you feel hopeless, if you feel threatened or overwhelmed, if you feel less than worthy or lovable, you can rest in the fact that you are a child of God. We have one more song that we're going to sing together, and I'm going to invite the worship team to join me on stage as we prepare to sing that song. And I just want to give us a conclusion of what we've learned here because there's a progression of thought in John verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. The first thought, invitation there is, is to receive Jesus, to, to welcome him and all that he's been revealed to be, whether you were looking for him or whether he was what you were expecting. No matter what the case is, when you encounter Jesus, you have an opportunity to receive him warmly. And then that next step is to believe in his name, not to just warmly welcome him, but to place trust in him, that he is who he has revealed himself to be, that he will do the things that he has promised to do. And when you are able to do that, you can then grab hold of this firm promise that you have been born again, adopted as a son or a daughter into God's family. There's a line of thought. There's an invitation that goes along that line of thought. And I'd ask you this, have you received Jesus? In your life? Do you truly believe in his name? Are you today a child of God? 
And if you are unsure or uncertain of any of your answers to these questions, I would love to talk to you more. You can tap me on the shoulder after the service. You can give me an email or drop by the office during the week. Whatever the case may be, this invitation is too good to pass up. It's too important to ignore. It's the point of the Christmas story. Because Christ was born so that you may be born again.